If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. Friday was the International Transgender Day of Visibility. And as we all know, the T in LGBT is way too often overlooked. But tonight's show is all about the T. We'll talk with Ames Simmons, who is the Director of Transgender Policy at Equality North Carolina, about Thursday's repeal of HB2 in the Tar Heel State. And our Miss Barbecue is in conversation with artist, TV producer, and trans advocate Zachary Drucker. And Steve Pride talks to retired Navy SEAL author and trans advocate Kristen Beck. And finally, I share my report from Saturday's rally for trans resistance in Santa Monica. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. <laughs> I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Carol Myers. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending April 1st, 2017. Despite his misgivings and apparently believing it's the best he could get at this time, North Carolina's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper signed a bill repealing the state's infamous so-called bathroom bill, HB2, on March 30th. However, the replacement measure would allow lawmakers to reinstate the law requiring trans people to use public bathrooms and locker rooms based on their birth certificate gender at any time in the future. And it also maintains HB2's ban on local governments passing laws that protect their LGBT citizens from discrimination until at least December of 2020. LGBT and other human rights advocates have condemned the so-called repeal for falling far short of that description. Dozens of LGBT-related bills are still being considered in several other U.S. states, while a few of the most homophobic and transphobic proposals have been withdrawn or rejected. The sponsor of an HB2 clone in Arkansas pulled her bill this week. Republican Senator Linda Collins-Smith's measure stated that bathrooms with multiple stalls in government buildings could only be used by people of one designated gender, which would be determined by what's on each person's birth certificate. Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson was among the bill's critics. But an anti-trans bathroom bill is still alive and well in the Texas legislature. Opponents say it's even worse than North Carolina's original HB2. And according to a weekly scorecard issued by the ACLU, similar bathroom bills have been introduced or are currently being considered in Alabama, Arizona, Illinois, Kansas, Kentucky, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, New York, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Washington. But bathroom bills have recently been rejected 
in South Dakota, Virginia, and Wyoming. There's an ongoing debate in U.S. courts over whether or not federal civil rights laws already protect LGBT people from discrimination. A three-judge panel of the Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on March 27th that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that bans discrimination based on sex also outlaws discrimination based on sexual orientation because the assumption of heterosexuality amounts to illegal gender stereotyping. The U.S. Census Bureau removed questions about sexual orientation and gender identity this week from those it would be asking Americans in the 2020 survey. Advocates for LGBT visibility had been excited because sexual and gender minorities have never been specifically counted in the U.S. Census. But an official Census Bureau statement a day after the agency sent Congress its proposals for the subjects to ask Americans in the 2020 census said the material inadvertently listed sexual orientation and gender identity as a proposed topic in the appendix. And in another betrayal of his promise to protect LGBT people, President Trump this week rescinded an Obama-era executive order that required companies doing business with the federal government to prove that they're complying with LGBT anti-bias executive orders. That included a ban on anti-LGBT discrimination in the workplace by federal contractors. Elsewhere, Swedish Health Minister Gabriel Wilkström announced his government's plans this week to compensate transgender people who were forced under a law in effect from 1972 through 2013 to undergo sterilization in addition to reassignment surgery before their gender identity would be legally recognized. He said the government would award the equivalent of about $26,000 U.S. dollars to each of the estimated 800 people affected. Female-to-male transgender high school wrestler Mac Beggs made news last month by winning the Texas Girls State Championship in his weight class. But the national organization overseeing the sport, USA Wrestling, approved a policy this week that will not only allow, but require the high school junior to wrestle against boys in any competitions off campus. But unless the state policy changes, and observers don't expect that to happen, he'll be forced once again in his senior year in high school to wrestle girls. And finally, the week ended on a sad note with the passing of the person credited with creating the world-famous rainbow flag. Friends announced that Gilbert Baker died in his sleep at his home in New York on March 30th at the age of 65. The first rainbow flags debuted with Harvey Milk's contingent in the June 1978 San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Parade. As one friend noted, Baker's rainbow flag will endure forever. That's News Wrap for the week ending April 1st, 2017. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Carol Myers. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And I am very sorry to hear about the passing of Gilbert Baker. I wonder if when he came up with the original design for the flag that later got changed, if he had any idea how important that would be. I know. And the weird thing is, I mean, you say it's an original design, but arranging colors in that order it's is nature, not, honey. in fact, original. And, and yet... 
now there's a sense of, of gay ownership when you see a rainbow. Well, it's, I'm it, getting out totally my flag stands, swag. I know. Our ornaments and our erasers my and our earrings. scars. And it's all there. And you can do it too. As you heard in the news, the repeal of HB2 in North Carolina last week was not exactly what we all had hoped for. Joining us to talk about that by phone all the way from North Carolina is Ames Simmons, the Director of Transgender Policy at Equality North Carolina. Are you there, Ames? I am here. Thank you for having me. Hi. Thank you for calling in. Well, I'm a lawyer, and I've been trying to get my head around what this new HB 142, sort of the new and improved HB 2, actually is. Can you enlighten us? Sure. It is for sure not an improvement from the perspective of the LGBTQ community. The bill that was passed on Thursday of last week, while it does repeal HB2, it prevents cities and towns in North Carolina from being able to enact laws that protect their trans residents from bathroom protections at all permanently. And it also prevents cities and towns in North Carolina from being able to pass ordinances protecting people in private employment and in public accommodations for another four, almost four years. So from our perspective, um, when you're a trans person who may be victimized by harassment or discrimination or violence, just stepping outside your front door, four years is too long to wait. Ames, this is Wenzel. I'm the one who's not a lawyer. And anyway, I, I, I'm just wondering, when, when I read this story, I wonder why, what is it in the culture that people go from one discriminatory bill and then leap right into another? Does this, is this building political capital for somebody? Or, I mean, why would anybody do that? This bill is part of a disturbing nationwide trend that we've been seeing for the past several years of um, bills that either chip away at LGBTQ rights that have been established by statute or by court decision or by executive order, or that somehow seek to reinstate an animus against LGBTQ people that, you know, goes back um, for many years in our culture. Governor Roy Cooper, who initially came out very opposed to HB2, indicated that he sort of felt like he he signed it into the new revision. He signed it into law and expressed sorrow that he wasn't able to, to, to do better. Do you feel that that was true or could he have done better? I also feel sorrow that he was not able to do better. He certainly campaigned on a promise that he would fully and cleanly repeal HB2, and that is not what he did. Like you, I heard the same statements about how he wishes that he could have gotten a shorter moratorium or that he would not have had to sign that into law at all. But from our perspective, he's the governor, and he had the opportunity to show leadership there the LGBTQ community doesn't have that kind of political capital. So we're very disappointed that he did not exercise leadership in that moment. So now the question of who gets access to which bathroom is regulated by the state legislature and not by Local colleges, cities, yeah. what does that even mean? Well, it means that we need to wait and see what additional mischief the Mm -hmm. North Carolina General Assembly can come up with as far as 
why they clearly have reserved to themselves the right to legislate on this. And I don't have any confidence based on their record that they are remotely interested in helping transgender and gender nonconforming people within North Carolina to deal with the harassment and violence that we already face in bathrooms. If anything, there's every reason to think there will just be worse laws. So you're waiting for them to do something specific then, right? So you're, you're essentially in limbo. That's right, particularly since any city that does want to um, ensure that trans and gender nonconforming people are able to use the bathroom without harassment, are, yeah. they're prevented from ensuring that. So it's, it's, it's every person for themselves. In the last few moments that we have here, I know Equality North Carolina has really taken leadership around HB2 and many other things that come down the pike in North Carolina. Have you talked about how you're going to strategize around this yet? We definitely are going to continue the good old-fashioned political tactics of organizing and advocacy and public education and outreach because we know in particular that the more people that personally know or work with a transgender person, the more likely they are to stand up for our rights. So there's certainly a greater public education campaign that's part of this, in addition to the usual um, legislative and advocacy agenda. Well, thank you so much for keeping out there and keeping the fight going, because people have to do that. And we, we, can't, we can't become complacent. No, and we will check in with you again, no doubt. Yes. Aim Simmons from Equality North Carolina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Good night. Zachary Drucker is a transgender artist, activist, producer on the TV series Transparent, and a longtime friend of our own, Miss Barbecue, like everybody. I know. I'm Ms. Barbecue with writer, producer, performance artist, and close, close soul sister, Zachary Drucker. Hi, Miss Barbecue. <laughs> Hi, Zachary. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you here. We're having like a leisurely chat <laughs> as if we were just sitting around the table at my house. Having tea like, like we've done before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When did you know that you were trans? What was the moment? You know, I think that it meant different things to me at different times. When I was really young, three, four years old, some of my earliest memories are of dressing up in my mom's clothes and of selecting her clothes for the day as she was getting ready to go to work, kind of like having great excitement about what was mom going to wear? How was I going to put her outfit together? As I reached five, six years old, kindergarten, I think those are the years when I started to realize that that was different than the way the other boys were. But I had a lot of female cousins that I was close to. I was a creative kid. And then I discovered the word transgender when I was 14 years old. I shoplifted a copy shoplifted. of yes, a copy of <laughs> Kate Bornstein's Gender Outlaw, which had come out probably a few years before that in the mid-90s. And when I discovered the word transgender, I realized that it was a answer to a question that I'd always had. And ever since I was a kid, people would ask, are you gay? Or, you know, there was always this sort of assumption that it was about my sexuality or who I was attracted to, because there was no awareness of trans people. I mean, trans people were like so far on the margins that you saw trans folks on talk shows, you could see them, you could identify them and know that they were out there. 
without it being a part of your actual physical reality. So the breadcrumb path to finding myself as a trans person, I think, in a lot of ways started with Gender Outlaw and Kate Bornstein. And I've always really subscribed to her ideology of making your own rules and inventing the thing for yourself because there are more than two options. And as a creative person, as an artist, I always felt I could take liberties inventing who I wanted to be. Part of that was being Zachary Drucker and not feeling pressured by an external world where maybe there wasn't as much space for us to sort of create room for a different way of being. And then I lived as a gender-fluid person, gender-nonconforming person for 10 years, and I started testosterone blockers when I was 22, 23. And I think that was when I started the kind of incline towards having a more feminized self. Well, I met you right at the crux then. Mm -hmm. When did you know this is what I want to do as an artist? Well, I used that anecdote of dressing up as the beginning point of my art career. Because what I would do is I would dive into this chest of dress-up clothes and I would come up from the basement and I would have on like my mom's old prom dress or like a dance costume and my dad would take a Polaroid picture of me. And I had this collection of Polaroid pictures of me as these feminine selves. And I still think of that as my first art project Photography provided a place for me to see myself outside of my physical reality, outside of the constraints of my physical reality. And then when I was a young teenager, I discovered photography again. And it was the thing that got me through high school, was spending time in the darkroom. With Transparent, how did you get involved with that project? When Jill Soloway started to write the pilot, she had met Reese Ernst, my collaborator, and fellow producer on Transparent at Sundance in 2011. It was around the same time, I think, that her parent came out as trans. And Reese's film was about a trans man and his girlfriend on a road trip. It was his thesis film as he was getting his master's at CalArts called The Thing. And a few months later, a friend of mine connected us again to Jill and said, Jill's writing this pilot about a transgender parent and you guys should connect and talk about it. And Jill picked up the correspondence right away and said, why don't you guys come over? Here's the pilot. She was still drafting it, but we knew pretty immediately that it was going to be major. And we've just been thrilled to be a part of it. And I remember when Jill had us over for lunch that day, she used the word collaboration. And we were both coming out of an art community for the most part. So that was exactly the right word for her to use with us. And she has a really non-hierarchical way of working. People really do contribute to the creative process. I heard about that on on the set and stuff. It's very collaborative with everybody from the grips to the lighting people. Everyone is able to put their say in something. Absolutely. And I've worked on the set before too and it was a very collaborative set. I mean, certain things needed to be in place, but it was a very collaborative set. Do you always factor 
I am a trans person doing this project? Or do you see yourself as Zachary doing this project who happens to be trans? Whenever people ask me about who I am, I always start by saying I'm a human. Yes. And when people want you to kind of lay out your identity keywords, I always start with human, artist, trans person, a Jew, I'm Jewish. Um, That's a part of my identity. You know, all those things, yeah, play in. But I think that sometimes we get so caught up in seeking definition and finding solace in definition that we undermine our common humanity and the fact that we're all one. So I think always starting with, like, I'm a human, you're a human, you know, there's no way to draw boundaries between that. For me, being a gender nonconformist, I feel I'm in the middle of being gay or trans. And I've gotten it from both sides of, well, you're gay, just deal with it. Well, you're trans, take your hormones and be quiet. And I'm like, no, I'm gender nonconformist. I feel just as not understood, just as the trans community was. I feel like I'm not understood on why I stand behind gender nonconformist, mm-hmm. almost like how bisexuals are treated, you mm-hmm. know, just pick a side, mm-hmm. you know, kind of deal. And so I feel gender nonconformist is the next group that needs to be understood and talked about. Yeah, I don't always make those distinctions because I think that the fight for gender equality includes hundreds of years of feminism has led us to this point where we're talking about gender equality for a larger group of people. In recent years, there's been more conversation about how masculinity is restrictive and how it prevents adolescent boys from like experiencing a full range of human behavior. Gender roles restrict so many people. We're all navigating that in our own ways. I think that being a gender nonconforming person is very difficult. And I did that for years, too, before I transitioned from, like, 14 to 24, basically. I was androgynous. I wore heels. I wore makeup. But I was not trying to present as a woman. I was presenting as, exactly. a, mix of, yeah, as a mix of signals. And I think that that is a more difficult position So I have a lot of admiration and respect for you and for you choosing to um, be comfortable in that space and to claim it. I think that social justice movements right now are gaining a lot of momentum. I mean, this is like the 60s all over again, and it's class consciousness that came from Occupy Wall Street. It's people recognizing that there is a huge disparity between the working class, the middle class, and the uber wealthy. I think that people are fed up. And then I think with Black Lives Matter, we have a conversation around violence against black and brown bodies the prison industrial complex and how it's basically a new form of... Capitalism. Yeah, and it's a continuation of slavery, ultimately. So it's not just one group rising up. It's a consciousness throughout society, you see. Yeah, and I think that we also see this rise of 
white supremacy, of misogyny, mm-hmm. of patriarchy. I mean, I think that we're kind of like in this carcass. Like we're all standing in this carcass right now, and there's certain people who are trying to like pull us back into the 1950s. Mm-hmm. But once you see something, you cannot unsee it. We're moving forward, whether folks like it or not. And I think that in the United States of America, we have a social democracy where we're able to put our opinions and our perspectives out there. And it's actually our civic duty to do so. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're exercising Mm -hmm. our power as citizens just in doing this radio show. This is Miss Barbecue with writer, producer, performance artist, Zachary Drucker. How do you handle cis women who tell you you'll never be one of us? That sentiment is out there. And it's well publicized. I think that that's a really small vocal minority of, you know, they're called TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists. And last year, like there was this article in the New York Times by Eleanor Burkett, and that was a big deal. And then there was an article in the New Yorker that was really kind of um, investigating what one of those communities is like and what their belief system is and what it's rooted in. But I think that we're all in this together. And all so of the, the women and feminists in my life are on the same page. I've never in my immediate circle encountered a woman who felt... I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that. There are certain people in my periphery, I think, who have been uncomfortable with me in a ladies' room or something like that. It has happened. But I don't think that we can give up our agency to self-define. I think that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. When you say like, and ultimately it's scarcity politics. It's this notion that you being who you are takes away some aspect of me being who I am. And the reality is that there's like space for all of us. Just because cis women exist and trans women exist, we're not compromising each other's positions. You're quiet when we hang out and we, we kiki and stuff. But I look at your work and it's like boom, 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 boom of major, major stuff. Thank you, Barbie. I mean, I enjoy the process. I enjoy working on things. I don't think I've ever done it for recognition. It's not a bad thing for people who do. My preference is always to fly under the radar, quite honestly, and just to not be bothered so I can continue doing what I'm doing. Well, that's changed. You know, the past Emmy, few years. past few years with Emmy you. nominations and transparent and stuff like that. You're not under the radar now. Thank you so much, Zachary, for joining us. Thank um, you for having me, Barbie. I look forward I to... the time of my life. <laughs> let's <laughs> look, do it again soon. Let's do it again soon. I, I look forward to sitting with you over many dinners over the years. For the rest of our lives. Soul sister. (laughs) (laughs) And whether we have Zachary here in the studio or here on tape, I always have a little bit of a crush on Zachary. Well, she's such an accomplished woman. Well, then she needs to come in. And smart and 
pretty and everything. But we need to behave appropriately if we bring people in that we have crushes it's on. It's true. I know. Um, I also really appreciated the conversation about the idea of gender nonconformity. I know. As a sort of like the taking the same place in that conversation as bisexuality did, where it's kind of like you're not neither fish nor fowl yeah. and, the, and the distrust with that. I hadn't really thought about that. But I think we're going to be talking about it a lot more. That's why I love it when we have people like that on the show, because it makes you think. Absolutely. And thank you, Miss B. Still to come, Steve Pride's conversation with ex-Navy SEAL Kristen Beck. And my coverage of Saturday's rally for trans resistance in Santa Monica. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Flying the flag of pride, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The rainbow has played a part in many myths and stories related to gender and sexuality in Greek, Native American, African, and other cultures. In the gay and lesbian community, it represents pride and diversity. The original pride flag, designed by Gilbert Baker in 1978, had eight colors. In 1979, the flag was modified to its current six-stripe format. Red, representing light, orange for healing, yellow for the sun, green for natural serenity, blue for art, and purple for harmony. This design is officially recognized by the International Congress of Flag Makers. In 1994, a huge rainbow flag 30 feet wide and one mile long was carried by 10,000 people in New York's Pride Parade commemorating the 25th anniversary of Stonewall. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Garth Ellis. Hello, my name is Buck Angel. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine every Monday night from 7 to 8 p.m. on KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Back when she was a member of SEAL Team 6, Kristen Beck liked to grow her beard real long, as she put it. But as disguises go, that was nothing. Steve Pride reports. Christopher Beck was a Navy SEAL, a hero a self-described angry bearded Viking who hid her transgender status for 20 years in the Navy, finally coming out in 2013 and embracing her truth as a woman named Kristen. I grew up in a very conservative family, Christian. I have three sisters and one brother on a farm with a bunch of horses and things. And my father made a comment that I was all boy growing up. And that was uh, something that I, I agree with. You know, I was all boy. But there was always that other part of me that was being suppressed because of society's wishes or being forced on me. Probably before grade school, I knew that I was different. But growing up in the 60s and 70s, there's no internet and there's no information out there that I could find. So there was no word applied to it. And I thought I was totally alone. So I isolated. I kept it all to myself. Didn't speak about it to anyone. Didn't really think about it. I knew it was there. My older sister, I used to borrow a lot of her clothes. She never caught me. I was always really super sneaky about it, placing everything exactly. So I got very detail-orientated, and that might have helped me in my military career also. But uh, I never even dreamt about saying any of this stuff to my parents especially. I just suppressed it. I just lived as Christopher. I did let it slip out to my sisters, and I let them in. 
on this secret that I had. I was in high school, I think. Kind of kept it at that level, just a couple of my sisters. My brother, I never talked about it because he was like that macho, really cool football quarterback brother. So I think he would have freaked out, but maybe not. I don't know. Those assumptions are tough to juggle. And then you became a Navy SEAL. I was a Navy SEAL for 20 years. I joined in uh, 1990 in response to uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I went through SEAL Team training in uh, 91 and was at SEAL Team 1 for a long time. I ended up doing 13 deployments. Seven of those deployments were in combat. I searched it out, the toughest of the tough, and then I went on from there to find even the toughest missions. Being transgender or being two-spirited didn't force me to do anything different. I am what I am. Going into Navy SEALs was a big part of who I am. I'm a sheepdog, you know. There are wolves in this world. There is bad stuff going on, and you need folks out there defending equality and defending the right, you know, the, the righteousness of, of people. So when those bad people pop up, you're going to need some people to try to defend and fight. I am one of those fighters. In the SEALs, I was driven, and I graduated atop my buds class. I was the fastest swimmer, fastest runner, and the fastest overall as far as the physical proudness goes because I drove myself. You know, I wasn't always born with those natural talents. I think my brother was definitely physically gifted a little better than I was for sports-wise, but I worked harder at it. I'd be out there running and uh, practicing and throwing the ball and swimming more and just practice, practice, practice. So through perseverance, blood, sweat, and tears, I became the top of that heap. And I kept the secret from just about everyone in the SEAL teams. I mentioned it to one of my SEAL team buddies. It was uh, one of my real old friends that I went through a lot of training with right in the beginning. His name is Mike. He lived on a boat just around from uh, where I lived on a boat. It was sailboats in, uh, in the middle of the San Diego Harbor. One night I went over there and I was doing a little bit of drinking and I had on a dress and a wig and all that stuff. I rode my little boat over to his boat and I uh, called up to him and said, hey Mike, I got a six pack of beer, do you want to drink a beer? He was like, yeah, sure, come on board. Oh, by the way, nice dress. So it was, it was kind of good humor. And then we spoke for a while, and he says, hey, I was born in California, you know, super open-minded. My parents are kind of hippies. I can dig what you're coming from. It's all right with me, but uh, don't ever do this in front of anyone else. You'll be kicked out, beat up, whatever's going to happen, but it's not going to be good, so don't do this ever again. And so I kept that secret from everyone. You know, he was the only one that knew in the SEAL teams throughout my entire 20-year career. I was super afraid telling anyone, even up until just a couple of years ago when I first came out. It was huge amounts of fear when I first left the house. I mean, people lose their lives every week. Every week there is one transgender person killed in America, and that's just terrible. And so there is a lot of fear in the community for our safety and for our lives. That's one of the things I don't think that the LGB part of the community, I'm not really sure they really understand that because me walking down the street, I would have a dress on or skirt or whatever, and all anyone sees when they look at me is they see the dude in a dress, and that's not what I am. I might look a little masculine, but I'm not a dude in a dress, and I'm not making believe, and this is not something that you joke about. If you're part of the LGB community, you can be on the street, you can be anywhere you want, any walk of life, and it's not on your sleeve. You're not wearing it right there out so openly. Unless you want to, you can choose not to, though. And I think that there are still a lot of people that try to hide it as much as possible. And even amongst the transgender community, the only way we can hide it is to not do it in your own home and in privacy. You can uh, put something on and try to feel comfortable in your own skin, but you can't go in the street. The only safety we have is stealth.
you have to hide in your house or you have to be so good at portraying yourself in the gender that you're comfortable in. You have to be so good at it that you can just blend in and be natural. We're targets. We're always targets. I'm a target. When I was in Tampa, I was walking down the street. I had an outfit on, nothing flamboyant, nothing crazy. It was just me, just being myself. Kristen, walking down the street. I uh, had four gentlemen walking towards me. I scooted between them because it was kind of a smaller sidewalk. Excuse me, I got past them. And then a couple of seconds after, one of them come up from behind me pretty quick and punched me in the back of the head super hard and knocked me right on my feet. As he was punching me, he's yelling, fag. So it was like, fag, boom. I was knocked out and I'm laying on the ground. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm waking up. And when I'm waking up, all four of them are kicking me. And uh, they're stomping me. So one dude is kicking me in the face. Another guy is kicking me in the chest area and that, in my arms. And then the other two guys were down to the lower. So he's kicking me in my private areas. And they were trying to hurt me pretty bad. And they did. It was hard to walk for a while after that. I had a real difficult time. What do you hope people take away from your story? The fact that human beings are dynamic. We are changing. We are fluid. We are gray. We are not Conan. We are not Barbie. We are not binary. You can't put labels on it. We can be anything we want to be is put our mind to it. The universe has no limits on what we could do, yet we continually put these labels, yet we continue to limit ourselves. We continue to beat each other up over these minor differences. We continue to crush each other trying to fit us into these little boxes. And that's one of the biggest problems we have with right now with humanity. If we could open up our minds just a little bit and understand how amazing humanity really is, I think we would have a way better life on Earth. I think that we could grow as humanity and become something special. And I think that's what I want to do. I want my soul to flourish, and I want it to flourish however it needs to flourish, and that would be part of this journey. Part of the journey for me is this gender journey and trying to open up other people's minds. That is part of my journey, and I'm going to accomplish that. We label our movement LGBT, but often there's a divide between issues of sexuality and issues of gender. Everybody kind of delineates the fact that LGB is one part of the community, and then the T is a whole separate part. And I think we could say the T and the Q, the uh, questionnaire, the queer side of our community, is uh, kind of off on our own. Because the LG actually started out with just the G. We're uh, such a powerful force in this movement and pretty much on our own. They saw themselves as separate from everybody else. I still think to this day that there is a lot of separation inside of our community between the LGB and the T. And just recently has the rest of the community even reached out to the transgender part of our community and uh, understood that we are part of the community, even though we're so different, even though that we are separated because one part of the community is all about sexuality and sexual orientation and another part of the community is about gender and about their self-identity. But I still think it's all the same because when you really look at it, it's about freedom. It's about equality. It's about a disenfranchised and a crushed part of society that have all banded together to uh, defend ourselves. When we realize that, how close we are together, don't even talk about the sexuality part, don't talk about the gender part, don't talk about any of that stuff. Just talk about a diverse community that can all come together and work as one and work as a team to try to bring that equality, understanding, and open-mindedness to an entire nation. And that's what I would like to concentrate on. 
It's not about civil rights. It's not about sexual orientation rights. It's not about marriage equality. It's not about gender expression and gender identity and all that stuff. It's not about any of that stuff. It's not about civil rights. It's about human rights. And when we all come together and we realize that, that diversity flag is not about sex or gender or anything else that we keep applying it to. It's about diversity and it's about pride. It's about us coming together from all different walks of life and coming together for a common cause. And a common cause is human rights. This has been a conversation with Kristen Beck, a hero in so many ways. And this is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I feel like I say this every time, but when I hear stories like that, I just think, what a journey. Yeah. If this were a novel, I would think, that is a heavily plotted life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and if Kristen Beck cannot reach into the hearts of diehard red state Americans, then it can't be done. Speaking of reaching into hearts, I went down to Santa Monica on Saturday to ostensibly cover a story, the Rally for Trans Resistance. I came away from that day, however, with, I feel like, a lot more friends and a real resolve. I learned a lot, so let me share a little bit of that with you. This is Abby Dees, and I'm at the Rally for Trans Resistance at the Santa Monica City Hall, one day after the International Transgender Day of Visibility. While yesterday was all about celebration and affirmation, today's event is quite a different thing. 2017 has already seen an unprecedented rise in violence against trans people, and the White House has just announced a spate of executive orders that will effectively strip away Obama-era transgender protections. So, the people gathering here today have a message for the president and America. I am Rachel Rose Lucky. I am a transgender activist. I am also one of only eight openly transgender elected government officials in the nation. You were involved in organizing this event? Yes, I was. What prompted this today? The original impetus was the repeal of Obama's transgender protections, the education guidance through the Department of Education, as well as his executive order stating that government contractors had to be diverse in their hiring. And now that those protections are gone, schools are allowed to discriminate. Obviously, that involves the bathroom and public facilities. And uh, as far as the government contractors, what it means is, is that there is no redress, there is no recourse for transgender people if they are discriminated against. Right now, there are, I believe, 36 states where it is legal to discriminate against a transgender person who is seeking housing, employment, and health care. What's the most important thing that you want to see come out of today? I want people to know two things. One is, we will not be bullied. We're not afraid. The second thing is, we are a loving community. And through strong resistance with love, we're hoping that some hearts and minds could be changed as we move forward. If Donald Trump had not been elected in November, do you think we would be here having this conversation? Or would these sorts of events have a different focus? There wouldn't be a need for this event. Are we moving backwards? Yeah, absolutely. Not only is there now no hope of forward movement, the things that the Obama administration has done for the transgender community are being taken away. We still don't know what Rex Tillerson's going to do inside the State Department. A deportation of a transgender person back to their home country is almost assuredly a death sentence. 
So this ties with immigration issues and all the other things that we are struggling with right Absolutely. now? Absolutely. It is about 5 after 12. The event was supposed to start at 12. This is and LA. <laughs> there are not a lot of people here, and I'm surprised. It's a beautiful day. What is your sense on why we're not seeing a lot of people right now? We did what we could to get the word out. The thing is, there was a rally yesterday. There's also another rally today downtown. It's, people are spread thin. It, yeah, and yesterday was the International Day of Trans Visibility. What yeah. we call TDOR, the International Transgender Day of Visibility. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's why we wanted to do it today, so that we could keep that thought alive. My name is Queen Victoria Ortega, and I'm actually one of the speakers today. I represent a couple of organizations. One is called the Royal Court, the other is called Flux, and the other one that I'm affiliated with is called Trans Latina Coalition. What's the most important thing that you'd like to see come out of today? I think the most important thing is a cohesive view around what visibility should look like, that it should be diverse. It's not about the individuals who will be speaking today because we are already at the table, but it's about the entire diversity that makes up the tapestry that is the trans community. And it's, let's make it intentional for us that enjoy a certain level of privilege to make sure that we create spaces for the rest of our community that might not be in the activist circles, in the political circles, that might just be an artist or a stay-at-home mom or dad that are trans, that they also be visible. What do you think needs to happen to get more people at the table? We have to be intentional about it. Some of us have to make the sacrifice of sitting down and being quiet and listening to what other people want. Have you seen a shift in the trans community around political action and involvement since the election? Most definitely. I think that there was a wake-up call for a lot of us that have been doing this work for a long time. And those who have not been involved in stepping forward around responsibility to some of the actions that the administration has taken. There's a misnomer that there was an executive action put forth by Barack Obama when it actually was a memo that was sent out to the director of the EEOC around, for example, workplace discrimination and school discrimination, also to the attorney general at the time, Eric Holder. So those are the things that were reverted. There was never an, an executive action that was put in place. So that's another thing that we're learning about. How do these things work? How does the system work? How do we interact in our local level and, and at the federal level. What would you like cisgendered people to understand? For me, ally is a verb. Allying means taking action, means hiring, housing, loving trans people, all the other positive things that would come with that. I also want to make sure that I take the opportunity to mention my transgender sisters that are facing incarceration. 97% recidivism rate. Literally, we come out, we go back in and people wonder why. Sometimes we're referred to as being lazy, complacent, or not trying hard enough, and that's why we engage, many of us engage in sex work. But the reality is that we're not given the opportunities. No matter how exemplary you are, there's always an if, an and, because again, we sound different, we look different, and we make people uncomfortable. Well, guess what? That is a challenge today, is being comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's not going to be perfect. Working together doesn't mean working perfectly together. It means having very difficult conversations. And another one of my favorite words is adulting. <laughs> yes. Adulting, coming through a compromise that we don't have to agree and all be the same. The same vibrancy that exists in every of the circles that are represented here today exists in the vibrancy and diversity of the trans and gender nonconforming community. We've got a lot of work to do. 
but I believe in every single person that is standing here today in the hot, beautiful sun of Southern California, that we are all gonna work collectively to make that happen for the trans community. Going back, and if you're not of trans experience, providing platforms for trans people to speak their own stories and for you to have conversations with your families and friends about how do we support trans-inclusive programming with money, with visibility, with telling the stories of trans people, especially trans people of color. I believe that. Do you believe that? Do you? I'm not convinced yet. Do we believe that we can change the narrative for trans people in 2017? Then I challenge and urge all of you to please go out, be civically involved, support, love, house trans people. Thank you. Who am I? Yes. That's a great question. Jessica, I'm an ally. I'm here to support friends. Plain and simple. Just raise my son in a community that we should love everybody. We're just, we're all the same. We're, just, we're no different on the inside. Whether or not your sexuality and your race. I was raised that way, so I want to pass it along to my son. I think it's a beautiful thing. Hi, I'm Barbara Jacobs, and who am I? I'm a, a LGBTQ activist and advocate and ally. Do you think visibility is enough? I don't. I mean, it's great to be visible and loud and noisy, but I think that people need to understand they have to vote into office across the country. They have to get involved in politics across the country and put progressives into lower-level offices so that they advocate for us everywhere. It's not just national politics. What are the next steps that people need to be taking to support trans rights specifically? I'm on a board at UCLA Law School, the Williams Institute at UCLA Law, that does research and data collection for all LGBTQ issues. And I think what people are unaware, unless we have data and research, we can't change laws and we can't have people understand what's going on. So the attempt to take the box transgender off the survey is an attempt to almost eliminate a huge group of individuals. So we fought for and paid for getting the box transgender on the California Health Survey, and we have to continue to do things like that. My name is Scott Turner Schofield, and I am a transgender storyteller of various kinds, and I guess I'm an activist. And you spoke at this event? Yes. Why was this event important to you? Because I'm basically taking any opportunity I can to be a voice that supports all of the causes that we need to support as trans people and allies, but that also advocates for trans people to take care of ourselves. This is a really hard time for everybody. Trans people are super overwhelmed generally. It was hard to be trans before this administration, right? So taking care of yourself in this administration is actually really big resistance. It's really big activism because healthy, happy trans people are kryptonite to haters. <laughs> I think I know what you mean, but explain that a little bit. Well, we live in a society that wants to make it so that we can't even access public spaces as transgender people. If you can't go to the bathroom, you can't leave your house. 
And that's what these bathroom laws, what it really comes down to. If you can't go to the bathroom, you can't work. If you can't go to the bathroom, you can't go to school. If you can't go to the bathroom, you can't leave your house because what happens if you need to use the bathroom when you're outside of your house? And that is a direct way of erasing transgender and gender non-conforming people from the world, from the face of the earth. What I say is, look, be happy, be healthy, be entitled. Can you imagine telling a straight white man that he could not use a bathroom? Can you imagine what would happen to you if you did? Act like a straight white man. Refuse, resist. Take up space. And take up space, yeah. We also have to live intersectionality by supporting our immigrant and our Muslim friends who are not trans necessarily, but who are suffering deeply like we have been for so long with the government so deeply in our lives. We know the pain of being personally persecuted for who we are. We can hold space for that and we can help. Nurturing relationships, cultivating diverse communities makes more support for us and our issues. And that is big resistance. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Audre Lorde said that. She resisted cancer personally and as the political act of prolonging the life of an African-American lesbian feminist. We resist, but we must resist for long lifetimes and find happiness along the way because a happy trans person is one of the more radical kinds of people I can think of. How about you? Happy resistance, I like that idea. <laughs> With over a dozen speakers representing everything from grassroots activism to academia and from local government to the arts, an enthusiastic crowd of several dozen stayed gathered for two hours in the hot sun to get inspired and take action for trans rights. This is Abby Dees for IMRU Radio. And another work of genius by our own Miss Abby. But I love that phrase, take up space. That needs to become the new rallying cry. Hashtag take up space. I know. That's good. Yeah, I know. And it covers everybody. I know. And so Scott Turner Schofield, who yes. was the one that was talking about that. We um, love him. Just a little advance notice. He is going to be contributing to IMRU in the near future. Yay. But I can say no more, so stay tuned. Oh, you tease. And I also want to let folks know that I wrote a piece about the Rally for Trans Resistance that is going to be in the upcoming issue of the Los Angeles Blade and might be up online in the next 24 hours or so at losangelesblade.com if you want to check it out. We'll link it on the IMRU Facebook page. Yes, we will. Where everybody should be going and, and liking. liking. <laughs> well, that is it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, our director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, board op, Frederico Garcia, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. And we'll close with a song from out trans musician Sky Kurgle called Tell Me a Story. Isn't that what we've been doing all night? Mm, good, good night. night. Strangers stare and they want to be the first to ask for my life in one word. But it's not that simple. Why do you care to know? Am I a boy or a girl? But I don't care about the answers The questions were boring Please tell me a story One, two, three, four What did your mom say? What is your real name? 
How about those drugs that you take? And does your voice change? How come you don't feel ashamed? What kind of love do you make? But you don't care about my answers Your questions ignore me Let me tell you a story Well, alright Ask me anything you want to And I Will tell you the truth My mom is my best friend And this is who I am All of it adds up to keep me sane Yes, I've dropped dark tears Cause I am a mountain range And any kind of love is good enough to be made But I don't care about the answers The questions were boring Please tell me a story